0: Hello, welcome to the show, it's Dan, not sure about you I'm a little bit bored being down here on planet Earth I fancy some adventure, I want some science Good job, it's a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly Thank you so much for listening, for following, for sharing. This is the show where we take a look at all the science secrets that are lurking across the universe, some amazing things that are millions of light years away, and some stuff that's happening down here on planet Earth. We're covering it all this week. We're chatting to a history and science expert called Izzy Lawrence, all about her incredible job bringing science to life.
1: There's a guy called Paracelsus. He invented everything. He invented the scientific method using magic, which is great. But he said that the body was made up of smoke, ash and flame. Also, we'll take a trip to the
0: smartest school in the solar system, Deep Space High, to see what animals do across the galaxy. Can pets go to space? Oh, good one. Computer, I think we need some expert help on this one. And your questions this week are on Saturn and how tornadoes are made. We will find out everything in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's kick things off with the science in the news. A British company has come up with a very unique way to remove space junk. Astroscale UK have invented a robot arm. It would be sent into space and it would grab dead satellites and other bits of hardware kit left in space and then they'll throw it down towards Earth so it will burn up as it speeds through the atmosphere. You see, there's a lot of garbage in space, from old rockets to dropped tools, and I guess with thousands of satellites being launched in the next few years, some of this might get in the way. It might cause space crashes. So it's fantastic that they're coming up with ingenious designs for clearing up space. If we do that at home, if we clean up after ourselves, no reason we can't do it in space, eh? Also, Japan staying in space. Japan was forced to blow up its new rocket after it failed to launch recently. The H3 rocket was due to blast off, but couldn't get off the ground. It's the first rocket of its type to be built in Japan for 30 years. And when it didn't launch, the chiefs had to press the self-destruct button. Now, you might have heard about a a space race going on at the moment. People like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are firing their own rockets into space. And then countries all over the world, like Japan, are trying to beat them to it almost to do it much better than them. So this must be really disappointing for the Japanese who have spent 30 years working on a rocket and for it not to launch and they've got to blow it up. That must be a heartbreaker. Also, some sweet news. A very special bird has been seen in the wild in the UK for the first time in 15 years. The bird is a little bunting. It visited Amwell, which is a reserve in the UK. Visited there all the way from Russia. And there have been just two other records of this species in the county. And this is the first one that they've seen for 25 years there. It's brilliant, isn't it? How how these creatures, (laughs) you can go years without seeing them. And suddenly they pop their head into our world and say, hello, I'm still here. I love the fact that there is so much going on in wildlife that we never really know about brilliant stuff. Let's check in with the A to Z of engineering then. For the last few weeks, we've been listening to this series where we join our engineering expert, Engers, who tells us all about a a, a different bit of engineering, how something is made, designed, created, what it does, who designed it... To find out which letter we're covering this week Because we're going from A to Z From acoustics all the way to zoos We need Engers to spin that big wheel
2: Hello and welcome to another Engineering Academy Where we're exploring an A to Z of everything engineering Let's spin the wheel and see where we're engineering today Over to Engers to spin the wheel
3: It's B And B is for bridges.
2: Thanks, Engers. You'll find bridges pretty much everywhere. Some are massive structures that span valleys and rivers. Others are smaller to help us cross motorways and railway lines. They can be made from many different materials, from wood and stone to metal and concrete. And did you know there are over 75,000 bridges across the UK? The oldest is Lincoln's High Bridge, which was built over 800 years ago. And the longest? That's Bromford Viaduct, which carries the M6 motorway along the River Tame Valley. It's a whopping 3.5 miles. At the other end of the scale, the UK's lowest bridge is just 30 inches high. So that's the 101. But how are bridges made? Let's ask Engers to help us get across the topic.
3: Bridges come in all shapes and sizes, but there's only actually a handful of styles. First up, arch bridges whose main feature is yes you've got it an arch shaped structure arches are held by abutments and pillars which carry the weight and force of the entire bridge structure then there are beam bridges these are probably the simplest type of bridge imagine a plank of wood across two chairs although they can have more than two supporting structures cantilever bridges are next they're a bit like an arch bridge but are held up with horizontal structures which are supported at each end the fourth bridge in Scotland is a famous example of a cantilever bridge suspension bridges use ropes or cables from vertical suspenders to hold the weight of the bridge deck and traffic the Humber Bridge is the UK's largest example of a suspension bridge And finally, there's truss bridges, which use a diagonal mesh of triangle-shaped posts above the bridge to distribute forces across the entire bridge structure. Next time you cross a bridge, try and figure out what type it is. Bridges and engineering have gone hand-in-hand since the earliest days, and that's because there are several challenges to be tackled when designing and building them. It's vital they're strong enough to carry the loads and safe for people, animals and traffic. After all, no-one wants to end up in the sea. And as they'll be expected to last a very long time, they're quite expensive and time-consuming to build. So how are they built? It's down to structural engineers who start by asking a lot of questions, like what's the terrain like, which will determine what materials and types of foundations are used? Is the area at risk of flooding or in a place with high winds? And what's the geology like? Do we need to take account of earthquakes and hurricanes? Other questions will include what sort of forces they expect the bridge to carry. Will it be traffic, such as trucks and cars, or railway trains, and crucially, how many? They'll need to work out if all these stresses and strains could take place at the same time. For example, a bridge might have to withstand heavy traffic and an earthquake. The engineers need to determine something called the highest potential load. They'll use software to calculate all these forces, all of which helps the design to be drawn up, in fact, They might actually produce a selection of design ideas as well as the structure itself other elements that they will need to factor in are security lighting intelligent transport and more there's been a tradition for hundreds of years to make bridges beautiful as well as functional but safety always comes first So now they have a design, it's time to get building. For many years, the four primary materials used for bridges have been wood, stone, iron, and concrete. Of these, iron has had the greatest impact on modern bridges. From iron, steel is made, and steel is used to make reinforced and pre-stressed concrete, which is a type of concrete that contains steel bars to add strength. Modern bridges are almost exclusively built with steel, reinforced concrete and pre-stressed concrete, which reduces the amount of steel and concrete needed in a structure, resulting in lighter and less expensive designs. But there are new innovations all the time. For example, the 30-metre Easter Dorwick Bridge in Scotland is made from 50 tonnes of recycled plastic. It's light and extremely stable, doesn't corrode, rust or need painting.
2: Thanks, Engers. And that's our take on the letter B. It's been brilliant. If you'd like to check out some other types of engineering, why not check out biomechanical, biochemical, biomedical or biomedical engineering?
0: Engineer Academy. Created with support from the Royal Academy of Engineering. If you would like to find out more about the A to Z, visit funkidslive.com slash engineer. Thank you so much to Engers. We'll have another episode of the A to Z of Engineering with a completely different letter on next week's podcast. Right now, let's get to your questions then. Remember, if you have anything sciencey that you want answered on this show, if it's something that's been rattling around your brain since you heard last week's podcast, all you need to do, get to funkidslive.com, find the Science Weekly page there. We've got a big button. Click record, let me know your name, and then ask away, just like this. This is Amelia,
4: and I'm seven years old. And my question is, how are tornadoes made? Thank you.
0: Amelia, thank you so much. How are tornadoes made? Last week, we spoke about snownadoes, didn't we? Snow devils. I wonder if that gave you the idea for this. Tornadoes are tubes of air. You find them quite a lot across America. And they spin round and round and round in a vortex, rapidly moving towards the sky. Some tornadoes can be a mile wide. They can travel at 250 miles an hour. Tornadoes are formed by large thunderstorms called supercells, which is a brilliant name for something weathery. We've spoken lots on this show before, haven't we, about hot air, how it's lighter than thick, dense, cold air, and that makes the hot air rise. Well, some thunderstorms, these supercells, in very special situations, make warm air and this rises. It travels higher through the colder air that's above it. And because it's very stormy, the air rises very quickly over and over and over and over again. So that's your warm air and it starts to move and spin, and then outside of it, you've got a lot of cold air, you need that there, which almost wraps around the tunnel of warm air and tries to suck it back down to earth. But then some of the cold stuff becomes warm, it gets whipped up into that updraft of the rising warm air, and as these airs meet in very windy, uh, electrically charged atmospheres and temperatures, they're they're always rising and, and falling, and that makes them spin. This rise and fall, they cluster together and that's what makes the tornado form, Amelia. Thank you so much for the question. We're heading to space now with Harry, who sent this in. Hello, Dan. My name's Harry. Why does Saturn have rings? Saturn is my favourite planet in the solar system, Uh, apart from planet Earth, because I live there, and I quite like it. Not sure about you. But I love Saturn, because when you think of space, you think of Saturn, right, with its rings. Well, millions of years ago, in the early days of the solar system, there were lots of planets and moons, asteroids and comets flying around. And some of these would have collided with other flying bits of rock. And that's what the rings of Saturn are. They're billions of small chunks of ice and rock which stretch 175,000 miles away from its surface. And they've got very close to Saturn because of its gravity. It's a big planet, so they got sucked really, really close. They, they've not touched the surface, though, because they're spinning. They're spinning just fast enough to mean that Saturn's gravity can't drag them right the way down to the planet's surface. It's almost like if you imagine water circling a plug hole, only when it starts to slow down does it go towards the middle. Which, for the same reason, is why our moon orbits this planet. It's sucked towards us because of gravity, but it's spinning too quickly, orbiting us too rapidly to get properly drawn in. So thank you Harry, that's why Saturn has rings If you have something you want answered next week on the show Make sure you leave it as a voice note if you can You can do that on the free Fun Kids app Or find the Science Weekly page at funkidslive.com Click that big record button, let me know your name And I'll say hello and answer your question next week For this week's Dangerous Dan Where we look at some of the most mean, strange, odd And wicked things in the universe We're not going too far really we're headed maybe out into your back garden, where you might spot the brilliantly named giant hogweed. Its name makes it sound like a huge creeping fungus, doesn't it, that you might find in the swamps of Africa. But really, it's a plant that originally comes from southern Russia and Georgia, and it was first brought to Europe in the 1800s, and since has spread far and wide because of their beauty, people like the look of it. It can grow up to three metres in height, which is pretty tall for a plant, at the top of thin green stems which rise high. It's got flowers that are thick, that are white. They look a bit like cloudy pillows, and they're all clustered up. Reminds you of something saintly and beautiful, but they've got a very strange way of being dangerous, right? Listen to this. It's not the flowers that'll get you, but the sap inside, and they do it in a bizarre way. The sap contains... Photosensitizing ferranocumarins, which are chemicals that make your skin sensitive to sunlight. So it's playing the long game, really, on being toxic to you. It's a compound, which means you get blisters, rashes, itches, scratching, and because it makes you more uh, sensitive to the sunlight, it means you get sunburn easier. What a strange way of doing its damage, eh? Nothing immediately poisonous, but something that's waiting until you step out on a very sunny day. And that's why this plant, the giant hogweed, needs to go on our Dangerous Stand list. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. This week, we're talking about history. And we're talking about science. And we're talking about how history and science are connected, because it's a lot more than you might suspect. Izzy Lawrence is a historian, an author and a comedian. They can join us now. Izzy, thank you for being there.
1: Hello. I am all of those things and more.
0: Uh, I think. Well, I...
1: well, I'm, not, I'm not that much more. I'm just, I'm just mainly those things.
0: Well, we've got like 10 minutes to discover what you are. Okay. All right. I'm not putting you on the spot, but we'll see what we get to. We'll try and find out. Uh, we'll work it out and afterwards
1: and I'll know. And
0: that'll be good. History and science. When we were at school, we taught them very separately. You have your history lesson, you have your science lesson. But I know that you're fascinated by how they collide, where they meet in the middle. Just. Open that up to us for a sec, can you?
1: Well, yeah, because for ages we didn't know anything. Like before we knew what made you ill, we thought like it was all like stuff that balanced in your body. So, like, you had guys who said that it was to do with the four humours, which isn't types of jokes. It is like phlegm, which is snot, blood, which is blood. Black bile, which I don't know what that is. I think it's like ink or something because I thought maybe they thought we were squids. And yellow bile, which is like yellow stuff that's in your your guts and stuff. I don't really understand it, but they said that when those go out of whack, that's what made you ill because they didn't understand that there were germs. And there are are other guys who said that actually there's a guy, my favourite guy from history is a guy called Paracelsus who like he was the best scientist in history ever right because he invented everything he invented the scientific method using magic which is great Um, but he said that the body was made up of um, smoke ash and flame Mm -hmm. so you know Before And these were clever people and they just didn't know. And that's why science is important because there's loads of stuff that we don't know now that one day people in the future will know about us. And they'll think that we're really silly too and we don't know anything.
0: I often think about that. The the most obvious one is for so long humans thought that everything in the whole universe kind of spun around the earth. But now we know that that's not true at all. When you look back through history, Izzy, you've spoken about How we people thought we were all fire and ash. What are the other like big moments where people, geniuses at the time, just got it completely wrong?
1: Just got it completely wrong. Oh, that's that's I mean, I know I know lots of rude ones about where babies come from, (laughs) but this is not the right podcast for that. I think it's really interesting, even proper clever scientists like Isaac Newton. Everybody's heard of Isaac Newton because he was the man with the apple, so he was sat under a tree and an apple fell. He didn't actually do that. That's the way we tell the story. But then he thought, oh, the planet is moving towards the apple as much as the apple's moving towards the planet. And so he came up with gravity and all of these sort of equations. But he also was interested in things like optics, and he looked at separating the colours, and he thought, oh, if I separate a beam of light and it goes into all colours of the rainbow, maybe, you know, all of this was correct. All of the stuff that he worked out was brilliant, and he's a genius, and he celebrated for that. The main thing he spent his time doing was alchemy. Hey so he was trying to make gold out of nothing so he was trying to like invent a special stone a philosopher's stone like in Harry Potter and he thought if he made this he'd be able to just create gold out of nothing at all and loads of scientists were like obsessed with this idea and it's it's now we know that gold's an element and that could never happen
0: with the philosopher's stone what would they have done with the stone like how can you make something from a stone anyway? would they have just rubbed the stone onto other things and hopefully it turned into to gold
1: I don't know I think he was trying to make the stone himself so he's like mixing things to make a stone and that's really hard because like stone nuts are made like through millions of years of like things being crushed or they come out of a volcano or something like that it takes a long time to make a stone and he was trying to make a stone that not only was a magic stone but also made gold So, I think there's a lot of magic sort of like in there, in the histories. And this is what he spent most of his time on. Like, one of my favorite scientists ever was a guy called Charles Darwin. And he came up with a theory of evolution, which is how animals change over time and become different animals so you start off with like I don't know a little shrew and you end up with some sort of whale over a long enough period of time that happens but that isn't what he spent his, the majority of his time doing yes he went to like on the beagle and he went and looked at all the different animals on the islands and all the tortoises and the Galapagos and that sort of thing and he did all, all of those notes and really important stuff that changed the world but the majority of his time he looked at earthworms and barnacles Which is really quite cool. So he spent his entire time because he was trying to work out why earthworms are important because they seem to be like to do with like turning over soils and that sort of thing. So he wanted to find out how they lived and he needed to find out if they could see, if they could hear. So in order to find out if they could hear, he played the bassoon at them. So he dug them out of his garden, he brought them in the house and he played the music and they didn't do anything when he played the music unless he put them on the piano and when he put them on the piano, they started dancing and doing all the things that worms do when they hear good music and that is because they could hear the vibrations. They couldn't hear with ears but they could feel the vibrations. Anyway, he wrote like books about this but the only thing he's known for is that one, that one sort of like big idea of the theory of evolution. So, yeah, it's a bit weird. It makes you think, doesn't
0: it? It, it, We spend all our lives maybe doing one thing, but we could be remembered for something we do over the course of about a year. And then that's what we could go down in history for.
1: Exactly. That's the brilliant thing about history. You never know. Like, There's a lady called Hannah Twanny, right? And she lived in Malmesbury and she died in 1702. Now, we don't know anything about how she lived at all, except in 1702, she was the first woman in history in England to be eaten and killed by a tiger. But that's all we know about her and it's just her last day. She got eaten by a tiger. I don't know know if that's a
0: like a really optimistic and hopeful thought for us.
1: I mean, if you want to go down in history, die in a really exciting way. Uh, Like, you know, get an arrow in the eye at the Battle of Hastings. That's the way to go, you see. Then everybody will remember you.
0: That's the secret. Now, I know that as well as being very interested in science and history, you do a lot of stuff with dinosaurs, right? There's this podcast, Terrible Lizards. Now, we love dinosaurs. We're always talking about dinosaurs on the show. We've learned about so many dinosaurs. I wonder if if you could just share with us one of the most interesting dinos you've ever looked at.
1: Well, I like Scantosauria up to Rigids. They're like, one, because they're called Scantosauri up to ridges, and there's a very few fossils of Scantosauriopteridges. ridges. They're not very big, they're quite small, but they're really exciting because they're dinosaurs. They're not pterosaurs, different types of animals, we know this, but they're dinosaurs, so they have feathers like a lot of dinosaurs do But also they've got the really long wrist bone that turns into wings. So these are, they've got like bat wings and they've got feathers. They've got everything. They've also got a really stunted face with a little like, you know, scrunched up face. They got like they've flown into a wall. Maybe they had flown into a wall, except it was before walls were invented. A cliff. They could have flown into a cliff. But yeah, and also they're impossible to spell and do not ask me. But they're called Scansori up to Rigids and they're really cool. There's a really good theory I've got, um, like a a bad science theory. That's a modern bad science theory about uh, brontosauruses and um, all the sauropods, if you want to hear that. Always? Always. Brilliant. Right, because the problem that we've got when we're researching, things like titanosaurs, these are the biggest sauropods, you know, the ones with the really long necks and the really long tails and the big legs that are huge and massive, is that scientists, paleontologists, have found loads of the legs. Right, They've got loads of legs, loads of the ribcage, loads of the big bones, but there are hardly any, like Argentinosaur and Titanosaur, there's hardly any skulls. Now, logically, people are thinking, well, this is because they're made up of very, very small bits of bone, which are very fragile, so they don't preserve. I mean, that's a logical thing. But there's this guy, he's like the best scientist ever. Right, He's called Paul Upchurch, and he works at one of the big universities in London. And he's like the top paleontologist, like all the paleontologists think he's cool, and he can't see. So he's blind, he's legally blind, and yet he can like work out what fossils are just by touching them, right? But he's got a theory about why we don't find many sauropod skulls. Right. And this is because, you know how some dinosaurs swallow stones to help digest? Yeah. Yeah, you've heard that. They're called gastronists. So they swallow the rocks and the rocks help churn up all of the uh, stuff in their stomachs. Well, he says that the titanosaurs, their necks are so long that actually when they vomit, they can vomit up these stones so much that their esophagus, their throat, accelerates the stones really fast down (laughs) their throat and they'll speed up. And he proposes that, why not, they could use the stones in their stomach like cannonballs to fire at
0: oncoming predators. And accidentally take their own head off in the process.
1: Well, this is it. They're very stupid creatures. So he proposes that because their brains are so small, when they're doing this, occasionally they forget to open their mouths.
0: <laughs> That's so good. We'll leave it there because what, what? Where else can we go? When you've learned about cannonball shooting, dinosaurs, where else can you go? It's been a real treat. Uh, history and science, genius. It all comes to one. Izzy Lawrence, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for having me. And keep on experimenting because it's. I, I can't do it. It's. It's too. It's too hard.
0: Before we go this week, let's take one quick trip into the depths of space. We're going to the smartest school in the solar system, to Deep Space High, to check in with Professor Pulsar. Uh, this week, well, for the, for the last few months or so, we've been learning from Professor Pulsar, getting lessons. He knows everything about Earth. Helps that his classroom window looks right down on our planet. He knows how we're made why the countries look as they do, what's happening in space. This week it's all about pets and where the pets can travel further into the galaxy.
4: Professor Pulsar's Space Explanation Service with support from the UK Space Agency. Somewhere between Polaris and Ursa Minor, just a glint in the night sky to the naked eye. But look a little closer and you will see it as professor pulsar's exploration craft the intrepid five piloted by trusted captain t tory while the pupils of deep space high take their school holidays pulsar is roaming the universe to explore the most dastardly difficult mysteries of space and broadcasting his findings back to the planets it can only be another episode of professor pulsar's space explanation service Captain! Captain! Captain T-Tory! Where are you?
5: Captain! Oh, sorry, Professor. Didn't hear you. I was listening to some music by my favourite band, the Quasar Chiefs. They're ace! I'm sure they are, t but that doesn't help us with solving any more space questions. Why don't you see if you can find us another fantastic question? I could dispatch the data scoops and see if I can troll something up. Yes, but hurry up. We want to see what is out there. Here comes one now, Professor.
0: Can pets go to space?
5: Oh, good one. Computer, I think we need some expert help on this one. Do you think you could sniff someone out? Target
4: acquired. Centering in on Swindon, England on planet Earth. It looks like somewhere called the UK Space Agency. Loading file. The UK Space Agency is the organisation that represents the UK space industry to the rest of the world. They are involved in a huge range of projects from across the UK, including getting the next Briton into space, Tim Peak. He will launch next year on a mission called Prince Appear. These chaps seem to know
5: their stuff. Who exactly are we speaking to?
2: My name's Andrew Koo. I work for the UK Space Agency. My job title is Human Spaceflight and Microgravity Program Manager. And Andrew,
5: do you know if pets can go into space?
2: They can. I'm not sure you'd want to take your pet to space because it's not a very nice environment necessarily for an animal to be in. In fact, we launched animals before we launched humans into space, just to test. There's Laika, the Russian dog, was a a celebrity in the Soviet Union. Iran recently have been launching monkeys into space. So there's no physical reason not to launch animals into space, but there's always an ethical dimension to these things. So you'd want to think long and hard before taking your pet with you, because they might not enjoy it as much as you do.
5: Interesting, yes. I guess because you can't explain what's going on to an animal. They might find it a bit scary going to space. Thanks for clearing that up, Andrew. Now, t while we have a communications channel open with the UK Space Agency, do you have any more questions that they may be able to help with? Hold on, Professor. Let me see what I can find. How about this one? I think it will be right up their
4: street.
3: How many people have been to space before? Expert
6: identifying. Connecting. My name is Libby Jackson. I work for the UK Space Agency.
5: Hi, Libby. Do you happen to know how many people have been to space before?
6: It's about 500 astronauts from lots of different countries. The big ones, of course, are America and Russia. But Europe have sent people into space. Canada have sent people into space. Japan have sent people into space. And China. So people from all over the world have been into space. I see. And in terms of the UK,
5: how many British people have
6: been into space? Well, the first... Britain in space was a lady called Helen Sharman. She went to the Mir space station, which was a Russian space station, in 1991. Since then, there have been some other people who were born in Britain who went into space, but they moved to America and they went up with NASA. So they had American flags on their arms. There have been some space tourists and people who were paying to go into space sarah brightman who is a famous singer will be going to visit the international space station as a space tourist next year a little bit before tim Peake gets there so tim Peake is our first government supported astronaut he will also be our first long duration astronaut So he's going to go and stay on the International Space Station for six months. So he'll launch at the end of November next year, and then he's going to live and work in space. He's really looking forward to sharing his experience with everybody. Um, And so you should look out uh, for him on Facebook, on Twitter, on the television. He's going to be doing all sorts of things. Excellent
5: stuff, Libby. I think I quite fancy a trip to the International Space Station myself. Captain T. Torrey, plot a course to Earth and we can be there in time for tea. Very good, Professor.
2: Firing thrusters.
4: Professor Pulsar's Space Explanation Service with support from the UK Space Agency. Continue your space exploration
0: at funkidslive.com slash high. That is it for this week's fun kids science weekly if you have enjoyed the show if you would like to leave a question that i can answer next week the best way to do it is by leaving a voice note on the free fun kids app or by clicking on our page at funkidslive.com we've got loads of brilliant series for you you've heard a couple today we've got tons more on apple Google, Spotify, the free Fun Kids app. Wherever you get your shows, they're at funkidslive.com too. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio and at funkidslive.com.